Hi, this is Corey Olson, the Tolkien Professor, and welcome to another episode of the Silmarillion Seminar. Greetings once again. I'm Dave Kale of the Silmarillion Heirs and Professor Olson's partner in crime on the Riddles in the Dark podcast, to which I know you're all listening diligently. This episode we spend an unprecedented third week in a row on the same chapter, namely, of Baron and Luthien, for which I will proudly take credit given my effective delay tactics and lobbying. Thus, I will forever affectionately refer to this episode as One More Week. Another acceptable title, however, would be Huan Singular Sensation. Now, I know this is going to shock our listeners, but we spent at least the first 15 minutes of this episode arguing the merits and dangers of oaths taken in Middle-earth. It's the topic that just won't go away. However, we rapidly move on to Baron and Luthien's assault upon Thangaradrum and briefly discuss exactly what Tolkien meant when describing Morgoth's lust for Luthien, both the broader notion of desire as well as the more disturbing sexual overtones. We explore fascinating parallels, how Luthien is variously similar to a Silmaril, to Arwen Evenstar, and to Sam Gamgee? Right around two hours, we finally get to discussing the singularly powerful moment in which Luthien moves Mandos to pity for the sorrows of the two kindreds, in which Tolkien takes themes from traditional myths and magnificently deepens them. Oh, and don't worry, we finish where we began. On oaths, of course. Okay, hello, this is Corey Olson, the Tolkien Professor, and we are hoping that we are broadcasting live. Uh, so we're still kind of testing this out here. Uh, our hope is to make my weekly Silmarillion seminar a weekly live event here on Middle-Earth Network Radio. Then let's <coughs> get going here. Um, we are starting, uh, as you guys recall, we did the uh, fight of, well, the, the duel between Finrod and Sauron last time, and we talked about the overthrow of Sauron uh, and the escape of Baron. We got as far as just before they met Kelegorm and Kurufin. So we we had some talk about Kelegorm and Kurufin before, so I wanted to kind of finish that up first and then move on to um, Baron and Luthien and sort of, as they begin the second phase of their relationship we had the initial phase of their of 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 their time together and now we have sort of the second of these three interludes that they're going to get these uh second of three times when they are together in the wilderness and in comparative limited and or short-term happiness together and so i want to get to that but uh first let's finish up with Kelegorm and kurofin um Let's see, Dave, I know that you had wanted to to come back to the Oath of Feanor stuff. I know that you've been uh, picking fights with people on Facebook on this subject and everything. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> so I, want to, I, I figure, and especially since this connects with the Oath stuff that we talked about previously, I wanted to give you a chance to uh, uh, to, to to get on that. So uh, go ahead and lay into Kelgorm and Kurofin if you like. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, basically, what it boils down to is uh, we've, we've, we've had various discussions both amongst our Silmarillion air selves and also on your um, with other folks and in my status message and stuff. And um, I have sort of continue, continued to harp on this point that I think that those guys are, um, that Kelegorm and Kurofin are a couple of opportunistic cowards, that if they really meant to keep their oath, they would be besieging um, Morgoth, or at least riding in there like um, Fingolfin and getting murdered. Um, you know, they obviously have no chance. Um, <clears throat> anyway, uh, you know, so like, and, and, and what people have pointed out is, 
what people point out is like, oh, well, technically they never stated how they would go about fulfilling the oath or what their timeline would be and things like that, which I think is kind of kind of a lame excuse. I mean, come on, you know. They said they would like merci- they they would relentlessly hunt down anyone, whoever it might be, Valar or demon of Morgoth, whether they, you know, whoever whoever took it so or kept one from them, they would go after him. And I've been saying, like, you know, I think they're kind of a couple of doofuses uh, and cowards. They, they only seem to really, they only get serious about fulfilling their oath when somebody else happens to say, I think I might go get a Silmaril. So it's sort of like, hey, we're not going to tolerate anybody else having a Silmaril except maybe Morgoth. We'll let him keep them, you know. <laughs> right. So right. I feel well, like... I, yeah, I feel but, like their behavior in this this chapter it confirms that yeah. my suspicion. So, while while there might be reasonable justifications for the why they might delay going after Morgoth, um, uh, you know the f- the fact that when somebody else decides to go for a Silmaril, they go out of their way to hinder that person and attack them, and then here we see them plotting to you know kidnap Luthien to take over all the you know try to wrest control of all the elven kingdoms in middle earth uh and um and then you know finally just trying to like ride down baron i mean i don't think these guys can be defended anymore maybe some of the other sons of feanor are slightly more justified but not not these two yeah and i I mean and just to kind of pile on there i mean the thing that i would add to that i think you could go even further than calling them cowards um they especially when you know when finrod makes his public declaration in Nargothrond that he's going to ha- that he because of his oath he's going to support Baron and he's going to help him pursue and get a Silmaril and immediately you know Kelegorm and Kurafin jump up and invoke their oath but the way that they invoke like the purpose for which they invoke it has nothing to do with the original intention of that oath you know they tell him like you can't go you can't take a Silmaril but they their their reaction is not to say because the Silmarils are ours and we're going to get it. They have no intention of going after it. In fact, what they do is prevent anybody in Nargothrond from helping to go get the Silmaril. So in fact, they are absolutely undermining the let's go take the Silmarils away from Morgoth campaign. Um, and, uh, you know, so, so this is not like, okay, you're going after a Silmaril. That's cool. We've been waiting for somebody to go after a Silmaril because, you know, we're like, you know, oath-bound to get the Silmarils and stuff. So I'm glad you're going after But I'm telling you, once we get it, remember, it's mine, not yours. Like, that's not the conversation they're having here. Instead, they're actually getting in the way of rescuing a Silmaril. And that that sort of look that they exchange at the end, you know, when, they, when they're sort of smugly realizing that they can move in on Nargothrond here and essentially usurp the kingdom of Nargothrond when Finrod goes away um, and that they can essentially try to set him up for death by sending him off with as few supporters as possible. Uh, they are, I think they're being worse than cowards there. They're actually essentially trying to exploit their oath in order to gain their own ambitious ends, ambitious ends, which have absolutely nothing to do with getting a Silmaril. Um, or any of the Silmarils. Um, and so that, I think, th- that to me is, is, is sort of the biggest, um, piece of evidence here that this oath is not, you know, it's like Finrod is bound by an oath too, but he keeps his oath even at his own cost, whereas they are exploiting their oath for their own gain. It's just, not to mention the fact that their oath is much, much shadier to begin with, as we talked about before. Um, 
but uh, um, let's see. I think Chris, you had your hand raised too, and then I think Brandon wants to disagree with us. So, Chris, go ahead. Okay, I'm sorry. I wasn't hooked up properly. I no problem. Um, first of all, I am not going to defend them by any means, but I had a, just a little bit different take on it than, than Dave's, although it's a little bit more like yours, Corey. Um, I, I, opportunists and ambitious are the things that come to mind, and maybe cowardice, but they, as long as there's no viable uh, plan to actually take the signals, they they love the status quo. I think they are having very serious thoughts about the oath they took, or second thoughts about the oath they took. And as long as there's no viable opportunity to go after it, they're just fine and dandy, having things the way they are, spreading their influence, and in this case, spreading their uh, their poison um, in Margaret's But uh, I took it a bit less cowardice than, and more than just more just. Uh, Opportunist, I think that's the better word, and, and then again, ambition to spread their their influence. Yeah, 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 and uh, and kudos to good old Kellabrimbor uh, for uh, actually separating himself uh, from his dad at this point. Um, you know, one of the grandsons of Fanor <laughs> makes good here, and of course, we'll learn a lot more about Kellabrimbor uh, in the Third Age. He's the guy who makes the Elven Rings eventually, but uh, this is the moment where he separates himself, and I think it's especially. Which is sorry, Chris, go ahead. I was just going to say, which is uh, what we've learned about Elvish culture, which obviously isn't really much. Um, you see that that's a huge deal for Celebrimbor to separate himself from his family. So just not for this chapter, really, but uh, just a thought that came to me. No, I agree. I mean, the only place we've seen something like that before is with Mygelin. Basically, who uh, who kind of who abandons his dad, but that that one is is kind of exceptional and and not so very positive, of course. Uh, that is, his dad is kind of twisted. So you know, leaving his dad is not the worst thing he ever did. But um, but the but the the fact that the only other person we've seen do this is Mygwin, whom as we've seen is kind of crooked. You know, that's that's. I I think just basically, Chris, I'm agreeing with you that it does show that this is kind of a big deal and not it seems to be done lightly. Um, of course, you could say that the sons of Finarfin, who didn't go back um, to Valinor with him um, and instead went with their cousins, the sons of Fingolfin, instead, um, might be said to have left their father. But it's not the same thing. He doesn't repudiate. They, they don't repudiate their father, um, which is yeah, they just take separate paths. It's I think it's a I think it's very different yeah. than. Yeah. You know, say, Dad, I'm not, I'm not part of you anymore. Go, you know, go away. I don't want to be with you. Versus just saying, okay, I'm going to go on this trek while you stay home. And I think it's a big. I think it's a fairly dif- um, different perspective. Yeah. yeah, and even Mygwin, when push comes to shove, that is when Aeol pursues them into Gondolin and is is making his speeches in front of the the throne of Turgon, as we looked at several weeks ago. Um, even there, Mygwin doesn't openly repudiate his father. He doesn't reply. Remember, this one of those wonderfully terse uh, little Tolkien sentences, and Mygwin answered nothing, right? Um, he just remains silent. Whereas Celebrimbor here makes the much... It appears... We don't get any speeches. We don't get quotations from him. But he appears to make the much more active statement... State... Uh, right, statement. I was right the first time. Of, of actually rejecting his father and, and, uh, and, and distancing himself from him. Um, so, the, yeah, I, I agree. I think that that's really a pretty big deal. But, uh, Brandon, you wanted to disagree with, uh, with uh, me and Dave piling yeah. onto him? 
No, no, I don't. I don't really want to disagree as much as I want to just kind of add like it's a little more complex of an issue. I think. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's a little more you know morally nuanced than how we're making it. Um, because when you swear an oath, aren't you? Are you not humbling yourself, your own desires, your own egoic desires, to a traditional thing? It's not that oaths are bad. It's just that the L's behind the oaths might be bad. And I always think of like of Lewis's preface to Paradise Lost, where he's talking about the pageantry of um, medieval courts, and where one wears you know gold and scarlet not to show how great they are, but how great the ritual is. And it seems that um, so is the same with um, with oaths. And I don't know, just maybe thoughts on that. No, I mean, I th- that seems. That seems right to some extent. Certainly, you know, you talk about the elf behind the oath rather than the oath itself, and and certainly, <laughs> um, certainly the, the the motivations behind the oaths. You know, I mean, it's a it's a big deal. You know, as to whether or not you can get um, whether or not you get a good outcome does depend, in, at least in part, on the motivations behind it at first. I mean, Feanor's oath. Its motivation is 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 jealous in the old sense. It's proud. It's arrogant. It's 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 just right. it's not good. Whereas somebody like Finrod's oath, that oath is motivated by really good things. But I still think, I mean, the thing that we said last week or the week before, I forget exactly when we were talking about this, about the fact of that that there seems to be some kind of presumption, um, or well, at the very least. I hate to use the word because it seems like a strong word, but at the very least foolishness um, and at the worst presumption behind the kinds of claims about the future or sort of implicit claims about the future that an oath makes. And the problem that oaths seem to get people in is that these situations arise that they didn't foresee and they're trapped by this confident oath that they made before. That certainly, um, at Finrod himself describes, mm-hmm. describes them all as being ensnared in their oaths. So clearly that's, uh, that's a kind of, well, I, I, not questionable. I was about to say questionable thing. Well, it's kind of questionable. At least it sort of suggests that maybe mm-hmm. not making that kind of an oath would have been better. But, um, but Brandon, I do agree with what you're saying. I mean, I don't think that it's necessary. I, I, I don't think we should say oath making always evil. But, um, but it does seem to, uh, it does seem to to. I want to lead to trouble. I'm going to jump in. Sure. Fair uh, enough. I'm determined to have the last word on this <laughs> subject. <laughs> and then we should probably swiftly move on if there's any chance of ever finishing Baron and Luthien. But true. True. I think I would agree that oath making is not always bad, although I think it's always risky. That w- I certainly think I think that's indisputable. I, I don't think how I don't how could you possibly say that the, that the oaths that people are making in the Silmarillion are not risky? They're always risky because you can't predict the future. This particular oath, however, is bad. This is a bad oath. There's no way you could possibly defend this oath as good when they sit there and they say that we're going to pursue to the ends of the earth anyone that gets their hands on one of these things. This was an oath made out of um, uh, hatred, um, uh, out of greed, out of pride. Like I, I, I take issue with the with the with the idea that oaths inherently involve humbling oneself and are and are naturally sort of a, a, a an act of humility. This oath, when when Fanor was standing there making this oath, 
clearly not an act of humility. This was not, he in no way was humbling himself. Indeed, he was staking a claim uh, to something and denying that anyone else might have a claim. And in the end, I think this was proven. Um, when, when they finally do get their hands on Somerils, they, they, they can't possess them anymore. They've lost the right to possess them, which I think demonstrates that, um, that, that the oath itself uh, and it's certainly the people making it, but even the oath itself was, in this case, a bad oath. Yeah, well, and again, I think the motivation there is really clear. I mean, I kind of, uh, I think that the oath of Feanor is just about the the clearest example that we get of a bad oath. I mean, there's there really there, there isn't there isn't any two ways about that. I mean, the narrator states that explicitly, um, you know, calling it an oath which none should take. Um, so yeah, I think that that's that's sort of our clearest illustration, and can is it can therefore serve as a kind of touchstone to go back to when we see other people's oaths. Um, but uh, Dave, you're right. We do need to we do need to push on. But before we push on, I that sort of two two things quick. Uh, John, I know you had been wanting to to talk about Huon, um, so I wanted to give you an opportunity to do that if you could. Um, are you able to get to your mic here, John? Can you hear me? Yes, I can. Go ahead. Good, good, perfect. Uh, just a little talent here, problems almost. Lady Arunase can attest to that. <laughs> yes. Um, I would like to discuss primarily how Huan's character up to this point has basically at least served um, Kurufin relatively faithfully, even when, of course, um, the decisions were wrong, and then finally sides with uh, Lupin. And here we actually see a real open rebellion to the point of its total action against Kurufin. Um, now, earlier... The whole conception of beasts in Tolkien's works is kind of very interesting. I mean, in the Hobbit, we see Lord of the Eagles and so on and so on. But in the Silmarillion, I think besides Thorandor, um, Huan basically characterizes this very interesting subsect of, of kindred, of race, which is not apparent as easily, you know, to the, you know, the, the quick read in the Song of the Ainur, and especially in this one specific section, exactly. We, it's a very small summary. I think I read once in one book that um, the events in the Silmarillion, especially in Beren Luthien, are far more of a summary at certain points rather than a full tale. Because of course we had the, um, the Lay of Lathian, which you know described it in greater detail. But to basically <laughs> cap and not to ramble, um, I found the dynamic interesting at this point, where it seems like now Luthien seems to be leader or baron as master of Huon rather than the other way around. At the end of this little episode, I think we see um, Beren taking the knife Anglist from basically the Sons of Feanor. Yes. And also, we basically see him taking their horses. So I just wanted your opinion on those two things. Yeah, I mean, I think I, I, you're certainly right about Huon, um, and I think that that's it's a really important thing to point to. Um, we get, we have this sort of nebulous category, which we started talking about way back in the Aule and Yuvana, um, section. There's sort of this, neg- this, as I say, this slightly nebulous category of being that is creatures who are not children of Iluvatar, that is not men or elves or dwarves, you know, the stepchildren of Iluvatar, um, but yet who are also not explicitly Ainu either, or Ainur either, that is, uh, creatures like, like the elves. And we talked about that because the elves are discussed by Manwe and Yavanna when, uh, back, back in that chapter. And it seems like there are some other spirits coming in, and it, but it's not completely clear. We'll have the dragons too. Uh, you know, it won't be too long before 
we meet Glaurung, father of dragons, and, and that sort of that will come up again there. Um, and, and Huan is again another example of someone who is, uh, who is an animal, who, he's, he's a hound, and yet clearly has, you know, more than usual canine gifts here, um, and seems to be some kind of immortal spirit as well, but yet in dog form. So I think that, um, I think that definitely, there is a sort of a different category. I was just rereading uh, the Book of Lost Tales version of the Tale of Tenuviel, the first version that Tolkien wrote uh, of the Baron and Luthien story. And uh, this that element of it is much more pronounced in Tolkien's initial versions of the story. Um, that is, the, it, instead of the Sauron character, who, um, the one who takes Baron captive and holds him captive, from, uh, from which Luthien much less impressively rescues him... Um, is is a cat spirit. His name is Tevildo, Prince of Cats. And basically, you just have essentially these the this sort of army of cats. You know, the, the, this idea that the leaders of this one species of animals, namely cats, have sworn allegiance to Morgoth. And you have these other spirits, or these other animals, dogs, who some of whom have sworn allegiance to Morgoth, and from then, from them, Morgoth perverted them into the wolves. And Karkaroth is the uh, is the the greatest of those. And then, but some of the dogs have remained faithful to the Valar, and Huan is the head of those. So that's where Huan originally comes from. He's in the original story, but there he's just he's the leader of the good dogs, um, who comes to Luthien's aid. Uh, especially because she's going after the leader of the evil cats, who are the natural rivals of Huan the Hound. Tevildo the cat spirit and Huan the dog spirit are like, well, I mean, like cats and dogs. They're, they're bitter enemies. Um, and it's, so I think it's very interesting that although Tevildo, Prince of Cats, does not survive in the later versions of the story, Huan the Hound does. Um, and John, exactly where you started from, I think is what makes, one of the things that I find that makes Huan so compelling, that is his loyalty at the beginning and, you know, sort of where he starts not as just this kind of free agent, which is what he is in the Book of Lost Tales version. Luthien just meets him wandering in the woods, kind of doing his own, like, I am chief of the good dogs thing. Whereas here he is, a hound who follows at the at the the heels of his master Kelligorm. He he was a gift um, from uh, from Orome, as we talked about before. So, um, so I think that you know that seeing Huan being placed not as this kind of free agent, but in this clear moral relationship um, that is. Uh, his choices are moral choices from the beginning. We see him being faithful to his master, uh, and then we see him making the correct moral choice and uh, rejecting Kelgorm, his his previous master, when uh, when Kelgorm is really kind of turning, uh, obviously uh, turning even more than usual to the dark side. Um, so I do think that th- these things really make Huan a far more nuanced character um, and a far a far greater character. He really rises in stature, too. And and interestingly, last week we talked a lot about the prophecies about Huan, and there are no prophecies about him at all um, in the Book of Lost Tales version. Um, in fact, it's not even him who kills Karkaroth um, at the end. Um, so I, I think it's... it's, it's uh, I, he is a really interesting character, but I do think that this really sort of adds, um, adds a lot to him. Um, 
Okay, uh, before we leave this behind, uh, Laura, I wanted to go to you too, if you are available, because uh, you made a couple great points, um, which I, especially the first one about Angrist, the knife, um, is something that I was thinking too. I think it's a really wonderful point, so I, I didn't want to steal your thunder there, and I wanted you to go ahead and do it. Are you, are you, uh, are you available? I sure am. All right. Yeah, uh, you know, in just a long li- list of uh, how people coincidentally get the the one weapon that'll work for them in a situation. Um, if it hadn't been for uh, Kelligorm and Corifen attacking Baron and Luthien, Baron would never have gotten Angrist, mm-hmm. which is the only knife that can cut knife. Um, and I, f- I forget the simile like butter or something like that. And and that's what he needs to cut the Silmaril out of uh, Morgoth's crown. So uh, Kelgorm and Kurifin actually did them a little bit of a favor there uh, by uh, by letting by allowing Baron to get his hands uh, on Angrist. Yeah, yeah. No, I agree, and I think that this is a <coughs> wonderful example of the thing that Iluvatar said way back in the Ainulindale that um, you know evil things will always bring about good, and they will always end up contributing to the whole, and that this act of Malice, just sheer, plain, spiteful malice on Kelligorm and Kurafin's part. Um, when they, uh, you know, what we were discussing before was primarily their actions back in Nargothrond. Here, I think it's really hard to argue that what they're doing is just out of spite. And yet, their malice, this attempt at, you know, almost unapologetic evil, like, you know, now we're just we're not only conspiring to take over realms, which, if evil, at least has a certain amount of, you know, <laughs> guts to it. Now we're just, like, trying to randomly murder people in the woods. But anyway, in this moment, they end up providing Baron and Luthien with, as you say, with a key uh, instrument that they need to accomplish their task. Ironically, it's the knife of the of one of the sons of Feanor, which does in fact cut the Silmaril from Morgoth's crown. So um, all they end up doing is contributing to the thing which they were ostensibly trying to prevent, which was, of course, Baron getting his hands on a Silmaril. So, um, so yeah, I, it's it's. I, I think that that's a really that that's a really neat point. Um, uh, Laura, you also mentioned. I'll just kind of mention it in passing because I thought it was a really neat point. You're right to. To, to, to point to the parallel um, between Luthien healing Baron with an herb that Huan finds. Um, it, this, it does sound a lot like Frodo's wound, right? And Aragorn finding the Athalos and, and helping to heal him in the wilderness. Um, and of course, Elrond is, is, is a direct descendant from Luthien. Um, so I think that we can see that sort of uh, that healing power being pointed to very early on. Um, and it's another one of the many, many places in the Silmarillion where we can see sort of, I was going to say echoes of the Lord of the Rings, but really where in mo- in most of the cases, the Lord of the Rings is really being an echo of the Silmarillion. And, and I would just also say in passing, this would be one of many parallels between Baron and Frodo. Um, Baron who loses his hand and Frodo who only loses a finger. Um, there's... There are a lot of ways in which uh, Baron and Baron and Frodo are actually kind of uh, drawn together, um, though that's a study for another time. Um, but uh, yeah, 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 yeah. It's 
he's a smaller Frodo's a smaller version. Um, but anyway, let's let's move on to Baron and Luthien. Um, and Luthien's declaration that she's going to stay with him. Baron's decision, his attempt uh, on a couple of occasions to leave her uh, benevolently to leave her behind. Um, let's see. Uh, what does anybody want to contribute about that? I see there are a few comments. I know, uh, actually, since we were just mentioning uh, Frodo, Elizabeth, would you like to uh, to jump in with the parallel that you wanted to make there? Yeah, sure. Um, actually, I had been thinking about the decisions that uh, Baron and Luthien made, and I had uh, been struck by the quote um, when uh, that Luthien had said about uh, to Baron that you must choose Baron between these two to relinquish the quest of your oath and to seek a life of wandering upon the face of the earth or to hold to your word and challenge the power of the darkness of its throne. But on either road I shall go with you and our doom shall be alike. And that made me think about the Council of Elrond and um, Elrond's words to Frodo uh, about the quest of the ring. And um, that kind of took me on this whole journey of the similarities between Frodo and Sam and Baron and Luthien and um, both their uh, their each individual quests and their relationships with each other. And the more I kind of thought about it, the more I was struck by all of the similarities between the two. And it was just really interesting to me um, that they both went on these quests where they had to sort of invade the domain of the Dark Lords. They both had these companions who kind of insisted on going with them. They both, uh, it was kind of emphasized how they both had to freely choose uh, the quest, um, although one had to kind of recover a treasure and one had to lose a treasure, uh, so to speak. Right, um, right. And then they they both had companions who vowed to stay with them out of love, even though the, it was both, it was really two different types of love. And then they both had these moments where they tried to leave their companions behind out of a desire to keep them safe. Um, Frodo at Parth Galen and then um, Luthien here in, uh, in what we just read, but neither of them were able to do that. Um, they were both pursued by their companions. Right. And then they both sort of had this moment of realization that they, um, that they kind of had this doom of traveling with this person. Um, in the Silmarillion um, on 179, it, um, the quote is, uh, it says, Then Baron perceived that Luthien could not be divided from the doom that lay upon them both, and he sought no longer to dissuade her. And then, it, you know, it's actually very similar in The Lord of the Rings. Yes. Um, when Sam catches up with, uh, with Frodo, it says, So all my plan is spoilt, said Frodo. It is no good trying to escape you. But I'm glad, Sam. I cannot tell you how glad. Come along. It is plain that we were meant to go together. So I thought that was really interesting. And then, of course, as we discussed before, um, they were both held captive in a tower, although Frodo was at the very top of the tower and Baron was at the very bottom. But they were both located by their sort of companion through the, through the whole issue with the song. And then Sam saved Frodo by invading the tower from within, but Luthien saved Baron from dis- by destroying the tower from without. Yep. So yep. I thought that was interesting. Yeah. And then um, also they both sort of entered the respective Dark Lords domains in disguise, Baron and Luthien as a wolf and a bat, and then Frodo and Sam disguised as orcs. And then as you mentioned just a minute ago, they both lost um, a, a body part, I guess, in their quest. <laughs> Frodo, of right. course, a fram, and Baron a hand, and then they were remembered in song, you know, Frodo the nine-fingered, and then Baron one hand. 
And then kind of at the very end, you know, at the end of their successful quest, they both received these special graces that Frodo got to go to Valinor. And then Baron, of course, went to the halls of Mandos and Valinor, but then he got to come back. And the result of that is that Frodo left his special companion, Sam, forever, but Baron got to return to his and stay with his. So I just kind of had fun kind of thinking about all those parallels. Yeah, no, that is awesome. I mean, you're, you're right. You're right. I mean, this is, uh, that was that was perfect. Those exactly are, um, you know, several of the things that I was just alluding to about the ways in which the, uh, Frodo and Baron are paralleled and Sam and Luthien several times. Um, uh, and uh, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I've got almost nothing to add there. Um the one thing that I, I guess the one thing that I would add is just to sort of emphasize, as you said, the thing that the two pairs have in common is, is love and self-sacrifice and devotion to each other. Um, you think, uh, you know, with, with Frodo and Sam, you know, one of the things always to come back, especially that moment, um, when Frodo tries to leave him behind at Parth Gowan and Sam catches up with him and, and Frodo makes the speech that you read about his plan being spoilt, but it seems that they were meant to go together. Um, and of course we should be remembering, um, back to book one of the Fellowship of the Ring when they meet Gildor and the elves. And, you know, the elves are advising him that you should, you know, take, take those that are willing. Don't go alone. Um, that there is strength. That one of the things that, um, you know, evil creatures are almost always alone, um, because they can't trust each other and their ends are ultimately selfish. Remember Gandalf to Saruman only one hand at a time can wield the one, um, of course, that it would be the one ring, um, that is the one made by the, by, by evil, whereas the good guys make three rings that, so that they can work together. Good guys are always collaborating and the bad guys are always working independently and stabbing each other in the back. Um, anyway, so, and, and certainly Frodo and Sam's relationship and Baron and Luthien's relationship, um, are two examples of one. So it's people who are bound together by love and by self-sacrifice, putting uh, and by humility, put each putting one before the other, the kind of ways in which they sacrifice each other. Baron has just thrown his body in front of an arrow for, for Luthien, and now she is not reciprocating in the sense that she's only doing it because he did that, but now she is showing the same kind of thing, showing, look, I am giving up my life for you. I am. I recognize you're giving me the opportunity to go back and live safely at home, but I am not going to do that. I will go into darkness with you. Um, and both of them. I think, uh, again, both of them do that. Both of them make that choice, insisting on going into darkness uh, with the other one. So, yeah, I think that that's, um, that's a, it's, 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 it's these things that I, these are the reasons that I love reading the Silmarillion. It, when I do this in class, this is why I love reading the Silmarillion first um, before we study the Lord of the Rings and why I'm glad we've been doing the Silmarillion seminar now. I plan to go on and do a Lord of the Rings seminar afterwards, but I um, am really glad that we've done the Silmarillion first because this is the kind of stuff that you see. You know, you begin to perceive these whole new, these whole new dimensions when you can put some of these moments um, in Frodo and Sam's journey, in the context of this larger ancient epic quest of 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 Baron and Luthien, it uh, it, it really just sort of brings things out and emphasizes stuff that that one wouldn't just sort of notice by itself. Um, one other point, of course, quickly that I would make is Sam himself draws this connection as well. When they're on the stairs of Kirith Ungol, it's Sam who explicitly recalls. Um, 
the the quest of Baron and Luthien and notes the similarities. He's like, hey, you know, what? you've got a piece of that Silmaril right there in that in that in that glass that you have. We're in the same story still. Sam recognizes. Um, so yeah, I think that that's a that's a that's a pretty big deal. Great work, Elizabeth. That was fantastic. Um, I want to talk about uh, um, I want to talk about the song that Baron sings. And I've been kind of waiting to do this for two weeks now, ever since uh, I made my sort of uh, slightly more cynical observation about Baron. I'll start with actually going back to that. The passage I'm thinking about that we talked about two weeks ago was when Thingol speaks before... Oh, sorry, when Baron speaks before Thingol, um, when he's brought before Thingol and Thingol is mocking him and, uh, and has just asked the question, can you show reason why my power shall, should not be laid on you in heavy punishment for your insolence and folly? Um, which is sort of a weighted question. And Baron's response, um, is, and I'll, I'll read it again. This is on page 166. My fate, O king, led me hither, through perils such as few even of the elves would dare. And here I have found what I sought not indeed, but finding I would possess for ever. For it is above all gold and silver, and beyond all jewels. Neither rock nor steel, nor the fires of Morgoth, nor all the powers of the elf kingdoms, shall keep me from the treasure that I desire. For Luthien, your daughter, is the fairest of all the children of the world. And, uh, uh, the point I was making a couple weeks ago was that this sounds pretty sketchy, actually. Um, that Baron's first speech is kind of not all that impressive. On the one hand, he's speaking of Luthien as if she were an object. Um, that is, you know, he's like, you know, he, he talks about his desire for, you know, but finding I would possess forever. Um, uh, that uh, that's not so great. And then he proce- he proceeds to sound like Feanor. Um, Neither rock nor steel nor the fires of Morgoth nor all the powers of the elf kingdom shall keep me from the treasure that I desire. That sounds almost exactly like Feanor and his son. So, um, so, you know, Baron's frame of mind wasn't really obviously good here at the beginning, or at least not completely good. Um, there seemed to be some reason to be a little concerned about his own pride and his own possessiveness and his own attitude here. Um, and at the time, I said, okay, Let's wait and see what happens later on. And this is the moment, I think. You know, so coming back now, page 178, the song that he sings, um, which he believes to be a song of farewell. Um, you know, what he says, as he believes he is leaving Luthien behind forever, or at least fears that he's leaving Luthien behind forever, uh, here's what he sings. I might as well, might as well read this. Um, Farewell, sweet earth and northern sky, forever blessed since here did lie, and here with lissom limbs did run beneath the moon, beneath the sun, Luthien Tenuvio, more fair than mortal tongue can tell. Though all to ruin fell the world, and were dissolved and backward hurled, unmade into the old abyss, yet were its making good for this, the dusk, the dawn, the earth, the sea, that Luthien for a time should be. Okay, okay. Now, Thoughts on the poem? Who wants to who wants to, to, to do some reading of this poem with me here? Let me see. Joe, I think you had some ideas here before. Raise your hand if you want to pitch in on the poem. If not, I can go off on it. I can talk about this for a while, but I want to give you a chance before I steal everybody's thunder. Joe, go ahead. All right. Well, uh, I'll jump in here then. No, um, just one thing I want to talk about is, like, I mean, just you really see the tones change and, uh, just like a stream of mind, like you mentioned, I mean, uh, at first, you know, Baron speaking to Thingol, he's speaking of, uh, 
living and possessing things forever. You know, he says, Neither rock nor steel nor the fires of Morgoth nor all the powers of the elf kingdom shall keep me from the truth. <coughs> you know, I mean, he's he's speaking as one that's like positive and certain of life. I mean, like, you know, nothing's going to stop him. And then, uh, you know, when you get to the song, it's just, it's completely switched. Uh, you know, um, he's saying, you know, things in like a past tense, like it's already over, like he has no hope whatsoever, like you already mentioned. I mean, he says goodbye to the earth and the sky, and he, like you said, he says, Though all to ruin fell the world, and were dissolved and backworld hurled, unmade into the old abyss. Yet were its making good for this, the dusk, the dawn, the earth, the sea, that Luthien for time should be. I mean, he's just speaking as if he knows it'll end, and uh, he's probably going to be hindered by some things. Uh, but it's just, it's all worth it. I mean, it's just simply because of her. It's just, uh, it's just amazing how his tone switches and how his perspective is completely switched. Yeah, yeah, exactly. All, all for her. I, one of the things that was most kind of disturbing about that previous speech, if you read it by itself, is that he seems to be marginalizing her. He seems to be objectifying. It's all about him, right? I desire this, and I would possess this, and nobody shall prevent me from obtaining and possessing this thing over there that I want. Um, it was all about him and not about her. And she was, she was, she was just a, a treasure. Now, what he's saying here is almost exactly the opposite. That it's all about her. In fact, not only is all of what he does and want to do about her, he's talking like everything is all about her. Um, yeah, Chris, go ahead. Okay, when I, uh, when I was reading, particularly the, the very last, um, Three or four lines. It uh, it it's almost um, t- a similar theme to what uh, um, was heard before. Let me just read these couple lines. Yet were it's making good for this, the dark, the dawn, the earth, the sea, that Luthien for a time should be. Um, I finally found the section that I was looking at when the Valar were discussing good and evil, or the existence of evil, and that. Uh, on page 98, uh, let's see who, who says this. I think it's um, Manway says, uh, um, "Yet evil be good to have been." Like anyway, it just seemed like yes. it's more. It's hopeful. It's uh, even though we, the the world may end, or in the, in, I think earlier they were talking about the deeds of Theonor, um, um Even though all this great evil can happen. Uh, to take notice, more importantly, of the hope of the good things that result, even though the bad things may happen along the way. See, it struck me as a very, the, the very same thing. Yes, yes, and uh, and and here, Baron is identifying Luthien with sort of that essential good. You know that that the beauty that Iluvatar has has put into the world the beauty of Iluvatar's creation cannot be ultimately and finally marred by any evil or by any uh by any action and so Baron there in the in the second half of the of the poem I said this the second half he 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 he's got two sentences right in sentence number 2 which is the last six lines he's saying basically if if you could have what what would be like the ultimate evil Right? Um, that is the complete unmaking of all creation, the final marring of everything. If everything in the entire world were dissolved and hurled backward, unmade into the abyss, so you're literally undoing creation. Yet, the making of the world, the temporary and now unmade making of the world, would be good that Luthien for a time should be. Um, that Luthien's 
existence, even just brief existence for a time, would have justified everything and would have sort of undone all of the attempts of evil. So yeah, I I, I do agree. It does seem that that even Baron is sort of thinking in terms of of sort of that that ultimate. Um, all things working for good, that, that he's kind of embodying Luthien as the expression of that. Um, yeah, Brandon, go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say that it seems like um, here we have a passage where it's like uh, no longer is Baron wanting Luthien for himself, but it's almost more about the entirety of the, the whole of Arda. And even, like you said, uh, you know, despite the ruin, there was a Luthien. You know, it's almost like this big re- redemption. Um, she's like this, you know, bright star amongst this this great du- cloud of darkness. You know, and I think therein lies the secret to the answer from the l- release of bondage. But we'll come back to that maybe a full circle later. I guess. Yeah, yeah, definitely. That's where I want to end up uh, tonight. Um, yeah, 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 definitely. Laura, go ahead. Just uh, contrasting a little bit his earlier speech to Thingol and this poem, uh, the earlier speech is seems more like something, you know, a guy would say to another guy, <laughs> sort of boastful and showing, you know, how strong he is and, you know, he's powerful. And this is a much more personal statement. I mean, he doesn't think anyone can hear him or he's not thinking that someone is hearing him. And so he's, you know, this, this is much more of an internal, um, in, internal uh feeling or, or speech much more emotional and, and much more something um, on the on the inside rather than this this outward show that he's uh, originally had given to uh, to Thingol. Yeah, yeah, no, I agree, yes. Baron, the rugged Baron, alone in the wilderness, free to show his sensitive side, right? But, but no, you're right, because certainly, I mean, it's, we have to remember the context of that first statement, you know, he's, he, He's speaking pridefully, and he's 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 sort of boasting of himself, but he's defending himself too. I mean, he was he he's been challenged by Thingol, and and you know Thingol, and he's been insulted by Thingol. So he's been kind of put into that position to um, uh, to 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 sort of you know where he felt he had to defend himself, and here, you know, he is not thinking about himself at all, and that clearly makes uh, makes a, 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 a big difference. One thing I'd want to say before we move on from the poem is just uh, more on the... Fir- we've been focusing mostly on sentence number two that is on the second six lines, and, and I just want to say a thing about the first six lines. Um, I think it's especially interesting the way that he starts... Farewell, sweet earth and northern sky. Um, sweet earth... Okay, like, you know, sure, the earth is sweet, but you know, that earth isn't sweet. Remember, they're on the, they're on the borders of Anfaugleth, the gasping dust. Um, you know, they've just left, uh, uh, uh you know the 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 tall Ingaurahoth that, that Sauron filled with horror. Um, they're not in nice places. They're in places. They're they're in a section of the earth which has now been pretty thoroughly corrupted by by Melkor, especially since um, the Dagor Bragalach, which just happened in the previous chapter, the Battle of Sudden Flame. So, um, so but but 
basically, so the first thing he starts off by saying, before he gets sort of much more theological there <coughs> in the second half, he starts off by saying that, that basically she has cleansed it now. Now that that earth is sweet, and the northern sky, that sky which is constantly darkened by the, the gloom and shadows that are thrown up around, around Angband, now it's forever blessed. Since here did lie, and here with lissom limbs did run beneath the moon, beneath the sun, Luthien Tenuvio. Um, she, by her presence, has sort of re-sanctified it. Um, and I think that that's going to be an interesting thing, too, to remember when we come back uh, to the Silmaril and we we think about the sort of the blessing of the Silmaril and um, and uh, sort of the things being clean and unclean, uh, as we will see later on in this chapter. And so I think it's interesting to remember this moment where Baron has sort of declared the northern world cleansed uh by Luthien's very presence uh, which i think is which i think is pretty cool um uh, and, oh one brief note a couple of you had asked uh, uh, sort of a more simple question of definition um wolf hame and bat fell those are basically like the pelts the coats um that they they've apparently skinned Draugluin uh and Thorin Gwethil um and they bring their uh they bring their pelts um in order to basically use but it's not just like and you know now we have like a wolf skin hanging over us um but rather it's sort of used and then um through Luthien's power um they are therefore disguised and made actually to look like Thorin Gwethil the vampire and um and Draugluin the uh, the wolf I would say, in passing, by the way, vampire almost certainly means vampire bat. We should not be thinking Dracula. We should be thinking enormous bat. Um, I don't think I know any examples in any of Tolkien's writings where he uses the word vampire to mean anything but a bat. Um, And especially in some of his earlier writings, bats played a much larger role part um in fact in some of his early stories uh orcs not only ride on wolves they they also rode on bats so they had these like huge bats um they, you know so the, there used to be orc bat riders as well as orc uh, wolf riders um and by the time we get to his published stuff that is to the hobbit and to the lord of the rings the bat riders have uh, have fallen away uh though the wolf riders of course remain um so the Anyway, my point is there's precedent for bats of that size, and it's almost certain that Thurin Gwethil is an evil bat spirit, um, sort of parallel to Drowglu and the evil wolf spirit. Um, so anyway, that's, uh, that's just a quick, uh, a, a quick definition and explanation. Um, I know people sometimes get excited about the whole vampire idea in Tolkien there, but I really, it's, it's not, uh, this is not Dracula. This is not Twilight. This is uh, a very unsparkly bat um, that uh, that we're talking about here. Anyway, okay, let's uh, let us let us move on to uh, uh, to Angband here, um, and I want to especially um, I want to especially look at sort of the three encounters. First, the encounter with Karkaroth at the gate, then the encounter with Morgoth, and then the encounter with Karkaroth at the gate again, the second time on the way out. Um, so, uh, and uh, let's see, Mike, you had uh, made a comment uh, um, in our notes about sort of the parallels between Karkaroth and uh, uh, the the Witch King, the Lord of the Nazgul's flying steed, and you were certainly right to make that connection. So uh, go ahead. Did you, did you want to talk about that? 
Uh, sure. Uh, just very briefly, the language that describes how uh, the sort of dog character or killer dog uh, is is nourished and, and made to grow huge and destructive uh, parallel the language where there's a little descriptive passage on how the flying steed of the Lord of the Nazgul was made to grow bigger and more terrible and worse than it could have possibly have grown on its own. So I need parallel there. Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. I, I, there's, uh, um, there's very much a, uh, those, I always think of those two passages together too. Um, there, there's a great similarity between how they are fed with fell meats and grow to, you know, far beyond the stature that is normal to their race and, um, and are fed. And of course the implication here in both cases, um, um, whether it's Sauron doing it with the with the fell flying beast or or Morgoth doing it with Karkaroth, in both cases, it's not just you know that he's being nurtured and fed evil meats. I'm not sure what makes him meat evil, by the way. Exactly, does that mean the meat of an evil creature or a meat acquired in some evil way? I'm not. I'm, I've never been 100 percent sure about that. But anyway, um. Uh, it's it, it's not just like his diet and and uh, exercise regimen, but rather you know the the very sort of power and spirit of of Morgoth and Sauron themselves that we know when we've talked a little bit before about how these evil characters kind of disperse their own spirit in investing their servants with evil, and we get in those passages a kind of glimpse of those two guys doing that, you know, sort of that, that inaction, um, in these moments as they are sort of nurturing, uh, and bringing up these two, these two abominable creatures. And I say abominable carefully, that is, they are made into abominations, um, deliberately. Um, good. Now, see, uh, let's see, who was it who wanted to, I'm sort of going through my notes here, um, about, let's see, mm -hmm, about her, Luthien felling Mike, I think it was you again. Um, her her pity for for Karkaroth being sort of instrumental in putting him to sleep the first time. Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, pity is a theme in Tolkien's works, and the power of pity and pity ruling the fate of uh, many. And I just thought that uh, what initially sort of gets the better of this terrible, twisted, uh, abused, violent creature is uh, Luthien's pity, and she says, Oh, woe, woe begotten spirit, fall into dark oblivion, forget for a while the, you know, the dreadful doom of your life. And her pity is so powerful that the, the, the compassion in that pity strikes him like a lightning bolt. And so it's described as something that is just completely overwhelming and overpowering. And probably the, the only thing that might have been able to completely overpower this creature instantly and completely. Yeah, no, I agree. I think that that's, it's, it's really remarkable. Um, I mean, on the one hand, we can see here the kind of thing that we saw last time when we were looking at the duel between Finrod and Sauron, that is the connection between uh, words and power and songs and power that, you know, when these things are spoken with power the things happen. So on the one hand, she's just giving a command, um, fall now into dark oblivion and forget for a while the dreadful doom of life. And he's like, okay, you know, snooze. So I, he, he, on the one hand, she, she says it and it happens. Um, but I, 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 I mean, Mike, I think that your observation is a really important one because it is, I think, very important and very remarkable that 
she is expressing this in pity. She is not she's not speaking down to Karkaroth. She's not saying, like, you know, since you are evil and horrible, you must do what I say. Um, woe begotten spirit. Um, you know, you are conceived in woe. Um and what she gives him is what she does is an act of mercy. Um, that this might be the time when he is asleep. Uh under Luthien's spell, may be the only moment of peace, you know, the only time of peace that he has ever known, because what it means to be invested with the spirit of Morgoth and the way that he has to be made into the red maw and the jaws of thirst. The jaws of thirst, you think about that. I mean, on the one hand, of course, obviously that means he's, he's thirsting, you know, bloodthirsty, right? I mean, he, you know, his, his jaws thirst for the, for the blood of his victims and whatever. But of course, it also points to his own suffering, right? I mean, he's, he's continually thirsty and can and his thirst can never be satisfied um and of course we see this being literalized later on when he can't when he's continually thirsty because he's got the silmaril burning his belly up from the inside and he's trying to slake his thirst at the stream which he very very briefly does but then it um but then it doesn't you know but of course only temporarily uh can he can he ease the pain from the fire of the silmaril but but again that's just sort of the final step of the state that he's already in. You know, he's the jaws of thirst. That's his name. And so she's freeing him from that. It is an act of mercy. Forget for a while the dreadful doom of life. He is under a doom too. He is under a fate too. And his fate is dreadful. His life is dreadful. He is, you know, born to be, bred to be, raised to be just a weapon in the hand of Morgoth, and his life is horrible and miserable. Um, and that is what, and, 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 and sort of that's a, the tone and spirit of how she strikes him down. I mean, Luthien, at this point, from what Luthien has already done, you know, putting the wolf to sleep at the front door, even the wolf, capital T, capital W, to sleep at the front door doesn't sound as impressive. I mean, she's already overcome Sauron. She's already blasted apart the tower. Um, you know, she's, she, she's already done things which seem even more impressive than this. So, so I think kind of paying attention, Mike, as you say, to like the tone, um, and, and spirit of her, um, of her, of her, of her speech there, of, of her moment, um, is therefore, I think, then especially powerful. Um, well, let's now go on to her encounter with Morgoth. Um, and there are so many things to be, uh, to be looking at here. Um, in fact, I think that we should, I, I think that we should start off by reading some here. Um, just because I think we should. Okay. So I will read the two paragraphs actually right after as though lightning had smitten him where, where Mike stopped there. Um, Okay. Then Baron and Luthien went through the gate, and down the labyrinthine stairs, and together wrought the greatest deed that has been dared by elves or men, for they came to the seat of Morgoth in his nethermost hall, that was upheld by horror, lit by fire, and filled with weapons of death and torment. There Baron slunk in wolf's form beneath his throne, but Luthien was stripped of her disguise by the will of Morgoth, and he bent his gaze upon her. She was not daunted by his eyes, and she named her own name, and offered her service to sing before him after the manner of a minstrel. Then Morgoth, looking upon her beauty, conceived in his thought an evil lust, and a design more dark than any that had yet come into his heart since he fled from Valinor. Thus he was beguiled by his own malice, for he watched her, leaving her free for a while, and taking secret pleasure in his thought. 
Then suddenly she eluded his sight, and out of the shadows began a song of such surpassing loveliness, and of such blinding power, that he listened perforce, and a blindness came upon him as his eyes roamed to and fro seeking her. All his court were cast down in slumber, and all the fires faded and were quenched, but the Silmarils in the crown on Morgoth's head blazed forth suddenly with a radiance of white flame, and the burden of that crown and of the jewels bowed down his head, as though the world were set upon it, laden with a weight of care, of fear, and of desire, that even the will of Morgoth could not support. Then Luthien, catching up her winged robe, sprang into the air, and her voice came dropping down like rain into pools, profound and dark. She cast her cloak before his eyes, and set upon him a dream, dark as the outer void where once he walked alone. Suddenly he fell, as a hill sliding an avalanche, and hurled like thunder from his throne, lay prone upon the floors of hell. The iron crown rolled echoing from his head. All things were still." Yet another wonderful, for a brief style time moment, another wonderful example of those little short, simple sentences with which Tolkien so often ends these uh, these dramatic paragraphs. All things were still. Okay, lots to say about this. This is so good. Um, yes, yes, Mike, as you say, and and it stank, right? Yes, exactly that kind of sentence. Um, that is, speaking again of the fell beast, uh, when Eowyn is about to lop its head off. Um, good, good. Okay, now now here, there's so many things that we can see here uh, and, and want to talk about. I want to talk about what she does to him, what we see of her spell and of the dream she lays upon him, how we see Morgoth, what actually overcomes Morgoth. Um, but even before that, I want to look at, Morgo- at Morgoth's own desire and this sort of very sinister sentence. Um, Morgoth looking upon her beauty conceived in his thought an evil lust and a design more dark than any that had yet come into his heart since he fled from Valinor. Um, uh, so let's see. Raise your hands if you want to talk about that. I know several of you do. John, I think you had wanted to talk about this too. Um, so, oh, wait, John's not with us anymore. So, um, Joe, go ahead. All righty. Well, uh, one thing, I think that Melkor's plans are similar um, as to how he made the orcs and kind of parallel also to what uh, Swami did with the Urukai. Like, uh, we already know that uh, Einor and an elf mixed together can have children, hence Luthien. So, um, it seems to me that Melkor, thinking of this, is seeking to make, like, another race, like something super powerful, like uh, another mixture of elf and Einor that would be really powerful um, and I'm pretty sure that somewhere in the Silmarillion before it talks about one of his worst deeds being like uh, the twisting of the elves and yes. making them into orcs possibly. And then this this just would be so much worse. I mean, it just seems like this would just top everything, marring the most beautiful thing that like has ever been made and turning it into something evil for him would just be awful. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's hard because on the one hand... One thing that I want to say, because this is a mistake that people often make, um, one always has to be careful with Tolkien um, not to jump to conclusions about the word lust, because of course the word lust means, you know, has always meant desire. That is, in Middle English, the word lust means desire. Um, it doesn't mean what we mean by lust. In Middle English, when um, when one wants to say like crude and sinful sexual desire, they don't use the word lust. They they use the word lechery. That was that 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 is. Uh, Lechery, or, or or even luxury, it was sometimes called, um, and uh, lust was a much more generic term. It just meant it just meant desire, like you want something, um, and 
very frequently we can see Tolkien using the word lust in that sense. Um, for instance, he uses the word several times in that sense in The Hobbit. Um, for instance, when he talks about the lust of the treasure uh, and the dragon lust that comes over people that has nothing to do with sex, that's just about the strong, overwhelmingly strong desire for gold uh, that the dragons feel and that the dwarves feel and that Bilbo even briefly is taken by. Most of the time, therefore, it's not sexual, certainly not necessarily sexual. But, um, uh, here I think we have more justification. Uh, he's looking upon her beauty and an evil lust is, uh, is, is, is crossing his mind. Um, and it does seem that he is desiring her. Um, and th- this is one of the few places, like one of the few places in all of Tolkien's work where it seems that there genuinely is, uh, a sexual overtone there. Um, and, 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 you know, Joe, I think I, you have, you have a great point, uh, and, and that would be sort of emphasized by. Um, oh, Chris, I see that you were just going to say this, so I will give Chris Stevens credit for this, though I was just about to say it. Um, Luthien herself is the daughter of Melian and Thingol, right? I mean, she is herself the child of Melian, of 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 Amir and uh, and an elf, Joe, and you were mentioning this too. So you know, yeah, why why shouldn't he? Um, as I think I've mentioned before, um, in the original versions in the Book of Lost Tales, the Valar had kids. Well, it's not like all the time, but they, 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 they had, uh, there were a bunch of people who were, who were, who were children, um, of the Valar, many of the people, as, as I've cited before, Aonwe, for instance, who is introduced as the herald, uh, he's one of the mightiest of the Maiar, who is the herald of, of, of Manwe, was originally the child of Manwe and Varda, um, he moved away from that, from the Valar having kids, um, they still have spouses, as we've talked about before, a long time ago, but they don't, but they don't anymore have kids. And yet, Melian shows they can, in fact, reproduce with the children of Iluvatar. Um, so, yeah, um, it's a little bit, uh, well, more than a little bit horrifying. Uh, Dave, go ahead. So, um, I, uh, I just was conceived, I, I was sort of developing this thought um, uh, off of uh, something that uh, Jason just said in the chat window, which is, the notion of Morgoth having um, offspring is kind of interesting. Uh, I, I suspect that that he would have a if if that indeed was his concept, if that's something he even considered, and uh, in, in imagining if he actually carried it out, I suspect that uh, he would greatly regret it very quickly because um, you know, like I, I imagine the offspring of Morgoth would probably become the single greatest threat to him. <laughs> you know right. what I mean? Uh, Right. So uh, yeah. that's a very interesting notion, Morgoth reproducing. And and I have a feeling deep down that he wouldn't actually want to do it. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's, um, yeah, I mean, certainly it's hard to imagine Morgoth being a good dad. Um uh, and certainly would, would, uh, would fear his children. And of course, there's lots of precedent for this kind of thing. Of course, one only has to briefly look at other mythologies to see, uh, you know, divine fathers who are overlook, always looking over their shoulders at their, at their sons, especially, for instance, in Greek mythology all over the place. Um, Morgoth wouldn't want to end up castrated and kicked out like so many others. Um, but, um, uh, but yeah, I mean, I think that the, in the, in the context of his desire, of his own malice and his own plan, I think that, you know, the, the two things in the immediate context that we need to, to sort of look at, uh, that is the, the way in which Tolkien contextualizes, um, this evil plan that immediately we see that it undoes him. Um, 
he doesn't even get a chance to try and experiment. And Dave, I, I, I'm guessing you're right that most likely it would backfire on him were we able to carry it out. And the strongest evidence that we have for that is that it backfires on him before he even has a chance to carry it out. Like while he's still thinking about it, it's backfiring on him. Um, because, you know, and he is beguiled by his own malice, um, for he watched her leaving her free for a while. Um, so, so, so yes, it's ultimate backfiring seems, seems pretty safe. Um, but Brandon, go ahead. Yeah, I just, uh, I happen to disagree that, uh, this is some kind of, uh, innuendo of like sexual lust in some ways. Um, I think it's more of a, a lust just for power over a Louvatar. Um, you know, he sees, Morgoth, when he sees beauty, he conceives a design to use that beauty for power. Um, but, you know, just remember that he, Morgoth himself was once a beautiful thing. Right. Uh, right. Fallen. Um, you know, so he sees himself in Luthien and ultimately a Lubitar and says, well, here's somehow I can over, you know, I can, I can get a Luvatar if I can get Luthien, maybe. Maybe that's his lust. Maybe it's not so as much sexual, you know? Well, right, no, I mean, there's definitely a case for this. And I certainly think we have to be very careful about, even if we do see a sexual overlay to it, which I, I, I say I have a hard time avoiding in this, in this scene any kind of sexual implications of it, but I think we would be very much misunderstanding it if we looked at this merely as Morgoth sitting there saying, wow, I really have the hots for her, she's really cute. Um, it's, this is clearly not that. This is not, I mean, of course, the parallel here, as I think I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, we see several people who sort of suddenly see Luthien revealed in her beauty, um, and who sort of stand there, who, who, who are become entranced and sort of stunned, uh, by her beauty suddenly revealed. Baron, of course, in the woods, Kelagorm and Kurufin, when she meets with them in the woods, and Morgoth himself. Um, so, you know, so we do have, we do have that parallel, but he's obviously very, very different from Baron <laughs> in his response and the way that he's different, even to, uh, even to have the kind of reaction, a much more extreme reaction than Baron had and to be making possessive statements about her and stuff. Um, it's, it's, it's sort of, uh, not even, a, n- nothing like as far as, as Morgoth seems to be going here. Uh, and I guess, Brandon, where I would, sort of the extent to which I would go along with you there is to say, again, this is not just him having the hots for her. This is him seeing her as another uh, object of possession. It's already been established in this chapter that uh, Luthien's parallel to the Silmarils themselves. Um, that is, Fingal, her dad, was the first one to establish this parallel, Um you know, that, that, that he values her, um, you know, as much as, you know, more than the Silmarils. Um, and so he considers the Silmaril, a Silmaril, a cheap price, um, for a bride price for Luthien. And, um, and I think that that's, I mean, that's sort of the first place that we see it. And then in the very Feanor sounding vow or, you know, statement that, that Baron makes, we see that parallel sort of solidified. Um, she is like the Silmarils. And so, and we know, we know what his reaction, what Morgoth's reaction is when he sees beautiful things. The other way, of course, that she's parallel with, with them, I mean, she is, she is the most, be- we're t- she's the most beautiful of all of the children of Iluvatar that ever was or ever will be. Um, in as much as 
these creatures are desirable in as much as they are beautiful in as much as they are brandon as you say reflections of iluvatar uh himself she is the she is the ultimate example um the ultimate example of this kind he saw the silmarils and they were the greatest work of craft that ever was or ever will be they were the greatest subcreation of any of the children of iluvatar and his response was lust desire he wanted them he wanted to possess them and have them for himself and he did um and now it's so it's like it, it would also be very natural, uh, well, very natural, very like him anyway, to want to basically add Luthien to his collection. You know, now I've got the Silmarils and now I've got Luthien. I don't know what he wants to, like, keep her in a little cage off to the side. Um, so, yeah, but and now, again, I do think that there are some sexual implications here. I, 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 I kind of doubt that we're not supposed to be thinking about that at all here. But... I do think that it's important not to be thinking only about that and not to be just thinking that, um, that he's all, that his, his, his thoughts are simply, uh, those of like, you know, somebody watching porn or something, you know, this is not just like the, the sort of, sort of a base lustful desire that he's having. Um, it's more complicated than that. It's, it's, but it's, it's sort of a bigger part of his overall pattern. Um, Mike, go ahead. I think we see a, a an echo of this dynamic in uh, Grima, Wormtongue, and Eowyn in The Lord of the Rings. Yes, yes. Um, that, of course, is another place where we ha- where there is clearly um, a sort of sexual innuendo as well. Grima clearly does desire uh, Eowyn and. Uh, and with a with a kind of possessive desire that he sees her as like spoil that he is going to claim as his reward, you know, she's his, uh, she's his, she's she is the promised price uh, for his treachery. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think that we can see a parallel there. But again, even there, <sighs> hmm, how to characterize the difference that I'm thinking of here? Uh, this is. Um, Grima's desire for Eowyn is wicked and possessive and certainly wholly disregarding her as a person or her own desires, and yet compared with Morgoth's possessiveness, it's almost humble. That is, she is the price for which he is going to do his treachery. Like, she, she is an end. In some sense. Now, it's, again, I don't want to make it this, like, too romantic and, you know, make Wormtongue into, into, you know, like the, tra- a tragic romantic hero here, but, um, which would be quite a bit of a stretch. But anyway, there's, there's this sense in which there's something even cleaner, even though it's dirty and nasty. <laughs> there's something, nevertheless, I think, by comparison, cleaner in Grima's desire, because at least, in a sense, she is an end that he desires rather than simply, um, it's just being absolutely all about him, as it clearly is with Morgoth. He wants to, again, it seems to me, at the very least, he wants to possess her like he possesses the Silmaril, and his, his desire, in as much as he does desire her, is, is entirely, um, is entirely, uh, greedy, is entirely self-focused, is entirely jealous and, 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 and arrogant. Um, but, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't want to go too far as I say. I, I, I hardly want to say that, uh, that Grima's love for Eowyn is good or a redeeming thing. I don't think it is. Um, but it strikes me as of a kind of a different quality. Um, 
I guess there aren't too many people with whom you could compare Grima to make him look noble. But uh, um, but I guess you know Morgoth is sort of a logical candidate for that if there is one. Um, uh, good. Now, see, we should also talk about sort of the second part there. That is um, about what she does to him um, and what her spell is like. Um, let me reread that passages on the top of 181. Then Luthien, catching up her winged robe, sprang into the air, and her voice came dropping down like rain into pools, profound and dark. She cast her cloak before his eyes and set upon him a dream, dark as the outer void where once he walked alone. And uh, I think this is sort of <clears throat> only only an, an, another place where we see um, her associated with darkness, right? We've seen this before. Um, we we were commenting when in the first meeting with Baron how she's associated with shadow and darkness. Um, you know, she of course not only literally has black hair, but um, but is but is frequently associated with darkness. And it's this wonderful, at the very least, this wonderful irony that uh, she, that Morgoth is outdone, is like outshadowed by Luthien. You know, this is in you know in 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 the depths of this you know the dark hell of Angband. Um, at the center of the darkness, and yet it's with shadow that she overcomes him. Um, as dark as the outer void where once he walked alone. And Mike, I think you had uh, some comments that you wanted to make about the outer void. Yeah, well, for me, the the power of her spell uh, comes from the fact that she, she the the spell is as dark as the outer void, and I get that that okay, you know, it's it's a darkness of blackness that's as as dark as anything could be in the story, which is the outer void. But for me, the the true power comes from she's invoking the place and the circumstance and time where uh, where he began his story, where we're first introduced to him as a character and as a being, where he was in the outer void searching for the light imperishable. And Luthien's power is that she is able to conjure that 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 point of origin, that point of where he began his journey, and that it is it's that energy and that power that puts him to sleep and puts him into the dream. Not the actual darkness as in lack of light, but the fact that she's conjuring where his story began. Yeah, no, I, and you know, and I would, I would go one step further, Mike, and connect it back to the other observation that you made about Karkaroth. I think that we can see a similarity there. Uh, so, if you think back in 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 Morgoth's story, that time in the outer void where once he walked alone was, you know, you can look at it from a you know a glass half empty perspective and say that's where he started to go bad, right? It was it was his impatience of the emptiness of the void that first led him towards rebellion. But at the same time, you could look at it from a glass half full perspective and say two things. One, you know, that desire, his desire for life and for light was a good thing. Um the desire just at just as Aule says, uh, when he's making his good speech to Iluvatar a couple chapters later, the desire for life, the desire for light, the desire for living things and for making things was placed into his heart by Iluvatar. It's his, his seeking after the imperishable flame is not a bad thing to do. Now it becomes twisted. It becomes selfish. It becomes prideful and therefore becomes evil. Um, but, uh, but it is not intrinsically bad. And I would also say, again, now back to the connection with her, her speech to Karkaroth, 
It was also, that is, that time when he was in the outer void, the last time he was happy, namely before he fell, um, before the, uh, before the music and before the discord, um, and before he became the wretched, self-consumed, um, and self-defeating entity that he has since become, um, he was briefly blessed and happy and beautiful and radiant and, um, and, you know, so in a sense, like, you know, just as she's, you know, fall into dark oblivion and forget for a while the dreadful doom of life, um, that's what she says to Karkaroth. In a sense, she's saying almost exactly the same thing to Morgoth there. Um, fall into dark oblivion. Yeah, like the outer void. As, as you say, Mike, it doesn't get, doesn't get darker or more oblivious than that. Um, uh, and, uh, and forget for a while the dreadful doom of life. Forget the misery that you have made for yourself. Forget all of your plans and all of your schemes and all of your pride and all of your self-seeking. Um, and go back for a minute, recapture for a moment, you know, how things were in the void before that. And then he, he, he sleeps, he falls. Um, and his own, his, his own, you know, sort of desires and un- un- undo them. I would go back then to his how he is cast down in slumber, um, when the Silmarils blaze forth in a radiance of white flame, and the burden of that crown and of the jewels bowed down his head, as though the world were set upon it, laden with a weight of care, of fear, and of desire that even the will of Morgoth could not support. That is his own, his own desires, his own. Uh, fear, his own care, the weight of the world, which he has named unto himself. Remember when he descends into Arda, he says that I, you know, he, he, he names it to himself and, and himself the master, and he names the Silmarils unto himself as well. Um, <clears throat> the beauty of creation, he can't, he can't support it. He can't live with it. Um, it is what he, the burden he has placed on himself that he has tried to take up, um, is too much for him. And that's, what weighs him down and he falls. And it's like the sleep that he is placed into, like with Karkaroth, is almost like a brief release from that. Uh, Mike, did you want to add something there? No, just just briefly. I think that there is the aspect of, of pity and compassion from Luthien's perspective, and she recognizes where his, his story began. I was just thinking of, uh, you know, to take a completely different example, Citizen Kane and Charles Foster Kane, and at the end of the movie where he remembers the little sled and the, and the happiness he felt as a character before everything went totally wrong. And so it's the same kind of it's the same kind of concept as far as I'm concerned. He, she's she's not invoking his childhood because he wasn't a, ever a child, but right. he there was a pure a, a pureness and a and a a time in his being where he wasn't corrupted and, and she's taking him back to that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I, 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 I agree. I mean, I think that that's, it's, it's really neat to see how that all fits together. Uh, Dave, go ahead. I had two comments. One, um, I wanted to know if, uh, okay, let me, let me, I'll do the other comment first. I, I hadn't ever thought about, I don't think maybe I've just never, um, read Luthien's song very closely, but I hadn't ever made the connection that you just did. And now I see, in a way, Morgoth, you know, she's sort of playing on, 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 it reminds me, well, I'm really stumbling all over myself. It reminds me of, um, when Fingolfin challenges Morgoth, and, and we see that Morgoth alone of the Valar feels fear. Uh, yes. and, 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 and this sort of harkens back to that, in that, 
because he has tried to set himself up as master of the world, he has essentially made himself vulnerable in this way that that you you know you were you were sort of pointing this out that he in trying to make himself master of the world he takes upon himself cares worries fears um, burdens and she's able to play off of that and and that you know that this sort of um, harken oh god I'm gonna make a Harry Potter connection <laughs> um, this reminds me of how Harry you know. Dumbledore states that, you know, tells Harry that uh, tyrants always create enemies in the folks that they oppress. And in, in this is sort of similar. Morgoth has made himself vulnerable to Luthien's song because of his desire and his to, to dominate others and to be a master. Um, and then uh, on top of that, I, I just wanted to connect this to Sauron's song um, uh, against uh, Felagund. That, that ultimately the victory or the, the the efficacy of the song is um, the the fact that the other person has has made a choice or committed an act that that creates a vulnerability. So Sauron wins because he sings about the horrible atrocities that the Noldor committed. Luthien um, is able to conquer Morgoth here because of the sort of, you know, the, the weak, the vulnerability that he's introduced in the evil desires that he has. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. No, I agree. And I, I think that, you know, we can definitely see that vulnerability, and it is his own choices that bring him down. And as, as we say, this is sort of not something that... Uh, um, not something that we sort of should uh, um, should be surprised by at this point, but uh, but yeah, and I think you know that seeing their sort of uh, this sort of symmetrical uh, thing with you know as I was talking about his desire for Luthien being compared to his desire for the Silmarils, um, well, and here we see those two things. Are two, you know the three things that we see him lusting after: Luthien, the Silmarils, and Arda itself. Um, those are the things which are weighing him down, and which bring him, uh, which which ultimately bring him down um, in this little in this moment, which is sort of a foreshadowing of his ultimate bringing down, um, which is going to happen later on. Um, yeah, good. Let's see. I, I wanna, I wanna move along. We've only got about uh, twenty minutes or so left, and I definitely want to get to the ending stuff. So that means we're gonna have to be sort of move swiftly by a couple things. But one last thing I wanted to hit on, uh, Nick, if you are around, you made a really interesting point um, about uh, Baron going beyond his oath and uh, moving to get the other Silmarils. Um, are you available to talk about that? Yeah, I just wanted to make a general comment on how. Pride often leaves a character to downfall in Tolkien. Uh, Baron goes beyond his oath and reaches for another Silmaril, and this is enough to supersede the power of the Song of Luthien, which enabled the fulfillment of the oath in the first place. And it got me to thinking that it seems that oaths, I don't want to bring it back to oaths, <laughs> maybe I do, but it seems that oaths, even though they may often be created in a positive manner, such as Baron's to Thingol, uh, they seem to often lead to misery, more often than not, through the process of unfolding. At the same time, songs seem to usually give hope or issue in you catastrophic moments, though not always. Um, so I guess just a general comment on the, the link between um, oaths and discatastrophe and song and you catastrophe. Yeah, oh, that's neat. That's neat. And it certainly is, you're right that it's sort of an interesting thing, that it's not the, 
it's not the fulfillment of the oath. Um, you know, remembering Finrod's words, and thus we are all ensnared. Um, Baron is not ensnared in tragedy um, at this moment. That is, it's not leading to his destruction, the oath, at this moment. What gets him into trouble is going beyond the oath. As you say, that's clearly sort of an act of pride, like, hey, I could come out with all three Silmarils. Wouldn't that be awesome? Um, not content with what has apparently been given to him here. Um, and I say given because it seems increasingly clear that this is destiny. We've seen this from the beginning. You know, the fate that it, the strong fate that is laid upon Baron so that he gets past the girdle of Melian from the beginning. We know that there is a strong fate, a strong doom laid upon him. It is his doom, and we have seen uh, things conspire. You know, we have seen events conspire uh, to bring to help him, uh, to help them, and to bring about this moment. Um, so when he seeks to go beyond uh, this, he's going beyond his fate. It is his fate to to take one of the Silmarils from the Iron Crown, not his fate to take all three. Um, and I think you know, I you're right. His action and and his action there certainly does almost undo uh the great um accomplishment of 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 Luthien's song there um yeah Laura go ahead yeah I just wanted to point out too that um when Varda hallowed the Simorals uh originally part of that was that no mortal hand could touch the Simorals without being scorched and withered but that seems to be put aside for Baron he's he's allowed to touch them without being scorched and I thought that that could mean you know the Valar may have a bit more of a hand in this than than we see from just you know external circumstances um, how else could Baron be able to touch the Simora without being uh, without being burned yeah it, it certainly is a, at the very least uh, a pretty strong endorsement of Baron here right um, that this is clearly what uh, that this is clearly a good thing of course we will see the flip side of this later on uh, when finally a couple sons of Feanor do get their hands on Silmarils they're going to get scorched by them um, so we can see yeah, there's clearly the difference being we were sort of looking at some of the similarities in the thing that Baron said and, and the Oath of Feanor, but clearly in the end, um, big differences between their attitudes and especially their attitudes towards the Silmarils. Um, but yeah, I think that there we can certainly see a sort of, uh, you know, Valar stamp of approval on Baron here at the very least. He is clearly, uh, he is, he is being protected. Um, okay. Uh, one quick question. Uh, before we move on to the final section, that is, uh, to, uh, Luthien's performance before Mandos, that is, uh, what, uh, about Thingol when they return, what exactly makes Thingol change his mind? Um, what are your thoughts on this? Why does, why does Thingol relent? It was a, I know a lot of people were, uh, you guys have, not been big fans of Thingol all the way through, and uh, there's a lot of harshing on Thingol a couple weeks ago when we were looking at that section. Um, why does he? Why does he turn around here, Joe? All right. <clears throat> well, it seems to me that like uh, one reason kind of is like a Baron's honesty and self-sacrifice and humility when he returns. Um, you know, he didn't Thingol didn't expect Baron to come back or live through it or touch a Silmaril or do any of that. Um, <clears throat> you know, granted, when he comes back, he's missing a Silmaril, but he comes back alive. With you know, kind of the proof missing the hand, and also uh, with Thingol's daughter, who was willing to go to the death just to stay with Baron, which is like a big point in itself. And um, 
I also kind of think that since Fingal sensed something that uh, larger was happening, he could that he couldn't stop, which could either be a curse of the Noldor or the Will of Iluvatar. I'm thinking it's the second one. Right. Um, I'm not sure which one, but uh, he just thought it best to kind of go with the flow. So he just kind of sent something larger going, and he got he got over himself, which is kind of hard to do because he's so tall. Yes, that was a joke. <laughs> yeah, no, no, you're right. Uh, sense that something bigger is going on. That's exactly the mis- well, one of the mistakes anyway that he made at the beginning. He was not he wasn't sort of realizing what this meant, even though you know his immensely wise wife was giving him heavy hints. Um, Nevertheless, he wasn't getting the fact that this is a big deal. This is a high destiny. Um, you know, when he's saying, who are you, baseborn mortal, uh, you know, to, 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 to lay claim to the, to, you know, to Luthien. Well, yeah, look, who he is is this guy with his really high destiny. This is, you know, as your wife was trying to tell you, this is part of the big story, man. And he's not seeing it. And now he's sort of recognizing, oh, okay, yeah, I, um, I think that, uh, now I see that this is kind of a big point, um, and that he realizes that he's just been kind of missing the boat. Um, so I do think that that's definitely part of it. Dave? Just one word, pity. Hmm. I had to say that for Laura, because she's got the little red line icon next to her, which means she's away. So uh, <laughs> I think the, the main driving thing is pity. He sees how much suffering they've been through, and uh, and it finally you know breaks him. And, and uh, of course, that is a... Very strong recurring theme throughout all of Tolkien. So yeah. But, uh, anyway, I'm going to stop talking because I really want to hurry on to Juan's death. Yeah, 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 definitely. No, exactly. And I think that uh, yeah, pity is because it's it's when it's when Baron holds out the stump of his arm, and you know, and 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 is like ah, my hand, it's not there. <laughs> it's not like Baron doesn't realize it, but the the way that that's dramatized, yeah, that's the moment. That's that's what we're told is the moment when Thingol. Uh, does have pity on him. So yeah, I think that that's, and that's a pretty good thing. I will say we've not done a lot of complimenting of Thingol in this seminar so far, but that does seem to be a pretty good thing, uh, for him. Chris? Just real quick, I, um, I think going along with what everybody else said, plus, I think he held men, humans, in such low regard always. I mean, he, he, uh, had no use for them, didn't want them around. I don't think he, you know, had any regard for them at all. And to, to just contemplating what every, everything that he had done, and again, in addition to the pity and some of the other things that have already been said, um, he thought, well, I think he discovered, well, maybe these, are, I, you know, I haven't given these creatures enough enough credit all along. Maybe I need to pay more attention to them. Yeah, yeah, good, and that's certainly we will see in the following chapters um, that that will be true of him. This is not just, hey, okay, this Baron guy is kind of cooler than I thought he was, um, but that it is going to be changing. His his attitude towards humans in general is going to be changing as a consequence of this. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I agree. I think that, that that's an important thing to point out. Matt? Yes, I was just going to say that I think it's one of the greatest ironies of all that we've encountered so far that... Uh, uh, Thingol re- refers to Baron as a mortal and a baseboard mortal, like like they're like a curse or a taunt. And then ultimately, his own daughter chooses mortality to be with Baron. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Now it's not, it's not. I think you know he doesn't. I think anticipate that yet. He doesn't see that that's happening or that that's coming exactly. I think, but but yeah, I mean certainly. Uh, it is a really pronounced irony that he, of all people, should um, 
he is going to have cause to regret that um, that way of thinking uh, pretty soon. And this also kind of leads us, points us, like, nudges us again towards our return, um, promised, uh, foretold by Brandon to the uh, release from bondage. Um, okay, I have to give you a chance. Any quick thoughts on the death of Huan before we move to uh, to the deaths and resurrections? Anyone? Death of Huan fulfills his destiny. Okay, Dave, I knew you had something on Huan. Well, my my comment's mostly trivial. I just wanted to point out, I guess they were right. (laughs) (laughs) Darned if that prophecy didn't turn out to be accurate. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) It it is pretty tragic, though. And, And, of course, you sort of knew, I mean... Maybe we maybe we should have known this. The, the prophecy doesn't say anything about why he would die or how he would go out other than who he would be killed by. But of course, he's going to die committing an act of self-sacrifice. I right. mean, that just, it's totally consistent with who he is. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's... And he's say you know, and of course, I mean, you get, you know, you know, how do you know you're in the middle of like a group of, of good guys? Well, like when everyone's throwing themselves in front of danger for the sake of other people, right? I mean, Baron got wounded by throwing himself in front of Thingol. Uh, Baron has been kind of making a, making, I was about to say making a living, but that would be an ironic thing to say under the circumstances. Uh, has been nearly dying multiple times by throwing himself, uh, in front of, uh, you know, between, uh, between the Thingol family and death. Um, um, but yes, and then Huan sort of takes it all upon himself and is the one who finally defeats, uh, that, you know, one of the greatest, and I think it's, it's easy to overlook. Um, you know, Glaurung is going to get a lot of press later on. He's going to be, you know, the, of course, this huge monstrous figure who's going to ruin a lot of Boarian single-handedly. But Karkaroth, we're told, is one of the great, this is one of the great dangers that has ever faced Boarian. Karkaroth was already, um, a really powerful monstrous creature and now he is in to some extent invested with the power of the Silmaro and um and this is kind of a big so Huan is is uh is is really accomplishing something. Um Laura? Yeah, I just wanted to point out even though the prophecy was fulfilled, it wasn't really fulfilled in the way you think it's going to be. You know, when we we get to Angban and we see Karkaroth, we think, oh, this is the end of Huan. But it doesn't happen until much later in a way that uh, especially Morgoth would not have foreseen. So it, it does fulfill the prophecy, but it's not exactly like what you think it's going to be. Right, right, exactly. It's, and and, th- and that's accentuated by the fact um, when Sauron tries to make the prophecy come true. Um, um, and that's, again, at like a a guarding the gate moment, right? I'm going to take the form of this huge monstrous wolf and, uh, and, and, and I'm going to fight Huan right there on the bridge at the gates of my tower. Um, and that doesn't work out. So that, that's, that does sort of prime us uh, when we see Karkaroth now guarding this other set of gates to this even stronger fortress, um, that this is going to, this is going to be the moment when Huan does his thing. But as you say, no, no, that, that's not the moment. It's, it's a, it's a different moment, uh, and in, in many ways, it's sort of a more beautiful moment. Um, but okay, okay. We have at least seven minutes, uh, to talk about, um, to talk about Luthien's song, Baron's death, Luthien's song, and their return to life. Um, Laura, I want to start with your point, um, because I think it's, I, 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 I wanted to talk about that too. Um, 
your comment about Orpheus. Uh, it was interesting. We started two weeks ago talking about Rapunzel, um, which is clearly a story uh, which you know, sort of uh, associated with which, you know, which it's hard to avoid when we're thinking about Luthien letting down her hair to escape from her, from her um, up the tree prison. And uh, now at the end, certainly we are at least as compelled, I think, to remember the myth of Orpheus. Um, Laura, would you, uh, would you be willing to do a little Orpheus summary for us uh, for the sake of people who are not immediately familiar to remember the details of the Orpheus story? Can you do that, or would you want me to do it? Uh, you know, really the only thing I really know about the Orpheus story is that he goes uh, to the underworld to try to reclaim his lover. Yes. And that's that's pretty much the only thing I know, so you might want to give a little summary. Yeah, well, it is a tragic death. I mean, the the um, the the sort of the classical story, and here I'm leaning mostly on Ovid's version of the story. Um, Orpheus and his wife Eurydice, well, his almost wife, that's sort of the tragedy, and his lover Eurydice, they're getting married. And on their wedding day, like during the ceremony, uh, she accidentally treads on a snake which bites her in the heel and she dies on their wedding day and it's really sad and it's really tragic and Orpheus is the greatest musician that has ever lived or will ever live and he descends down to the underworld and he plays a song of sorrow uh, before uh, before Hades, before Pluto, the god of the underworld um, and he moves the god of the underworld to pity for the first and only time and uh, and he says you can take her back up but he places this stipulation upon the return with Eurydice uh, to the overworld and that is he she will follow along behind him but he can't look back at her before they get up to the top and right before they get up into the overworld they're just about home free and he can't resist uh, turning and looking behind him and he turns and looks behind at her and he sees her right there behind him about to emerge back into life and reunion with him but as he turns back she is snatched back away uh, and uh, he has no further chance and he spends the rest of his life wandering miserably until eventually he is dismembered and torn into pieces so um, that's the Orpheus and Eurydice story and it's obvious to see the parallels here again this is this is something that um, that doesn't really take any effort to see. You've got, um, you know, the parallel of this, the singer. Luthien is one of the most powerful singers, like Orpheus. You have uh, the perform, the you know, sort of the well. It's in this case, it's not a, like a descent down into the underworld, but um, she goes to the underworld herself, um, sings before. Mandos isn't exactly the god of the underworld, but he's the closest thing we have in this mythology. Um, move to pity for the first and only time. Um, so clearly we have some strong parallels, but there are also some really important differences. Um, and I think it is, Laura, as you said, sort of a twist uh, or a retelling of the myth of Orpheus, which is different uh, in several important ways. Laura, you had some follow-up thoughts on that? Yeah, what got me thinking about it was actually Sir Orfeo, the medieval romance yes. Yes. that you talk about, fairy and fantasy, and that, that's what got me thinking on that track um, in the first place. Um, and also, I just wanted to, to bring up Nienna. Uh, when uh, Luthien is is crying in front of Mandos, I, it just made me think of Nienna with her tears watering the trees and... Um, yes. Uh, you know, the power of that kind of pity, that's the sort of thing that, that Nienna exhibits, and, and Lucien is, is putting it to good use here. Yes, yes. I mean, and that's, 
Um, yeah, let's. Uh, it's we 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 should we should we should read that bit because you're right. We should be thinking of Nienna. I think for several reasons. Um, is the very bottom of 186, top of 187. It's the fourth to last paragraph in the chapter. The song of Luthien before Mandos was the song most fair that ever in words was woven, and the song most sorrowful that ever the world shall hear. Unchanged, imperishable, it is sung still in Valinor beyond the hearing of the world, and listening, the Valar are grieved. For Luthien wove two themes of words, of the sorrow of the Eldar and of the grief of men, of the two kindreds that were made by Iluvatar to dwell in Arda, the kingdom of earth, amid the innumerable stars. And as she knelt before him, her tears fell upon his feet like rain upon the stones, and Mandos was moved to pity, who never before was so moved, nor has been since. Um, certainly that image of her dropping her tears like rain upon the stones, um, certainly should make us think of Nienna. Um, but also, Luthien wove two themes of words is also kind of a cue to us as well, right? Um, this begins to sound inescapably Ainulindale like, and when we are remembering the Ainulindale and hearing her song, what should we be thinking of? What does her song sound like? Anybody? Yes, yes. Hey, Jason, do you have your microphone? Say it aloud. The third theme. Exactly. Um, which we will remember is tremendously sad, but it is from its sorrow that its beauty chiefly comes. And I think that clearly that's what we should be thinking of here. Um, and I think it's important also. Um, Luthien moves Mandos, not just because she's saying, see, like, I'm really sad and I've gotten a really, like, you know, I, I, I've had this bum deal in my life and, and like things have gone really, like it's, my life has ended really tragically. That's not her song. Her song is about the sorrow of the two kindreds. She is in this sense, a foreshadowing of Eärendil, right? She is sort of the first emissary of, of, of the two kindreds together over here. But what she's doing is sort of even wider scope. Um, than what Eärendil will eventually do. Not just, you know, elves and men are kind of getting pounded on by Morgoth over here, but these are the, these are the sorrows of the two kindreds. Um, you know, the, the two griefs. Um, the sorrow of the Eldar and the grief of men. And I think we can even see a distinction, uh, between those two things. But, uh, anyway, um, so, uh, so I think that, yeah, yeah, Brandon, go ahead. I was just going to ask, what about the triumph of, over death? And just kind of like, you know, in this story we have so many releases releases of bondage. You know, I was just going through and counting and I counted six. You know, you have Baron's literal release, Huan's release from bondage, um, the release of, um, of the people of Narathon, the prisoners of Sauron, Luthien from her tree, and so on and so forth. But I think the biggest one is the release of the bondage of life and death, and through love and through sorrow, sorrow and beauty. You know, I think that's probably where the title comes from. I don't know thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean that's that's the you know it's hard not to see that as being the although as we say you know we were as we were noticing from the beginning there's there's a whole lot of you know different kinds of bondage and escape and uh and imprisonments and things people getting imprisoned there's so many jailbreaks throughout this chapter all this stuff but clearly the culmination of the 
of the release from bondage does seem to be very much the end. I mean, ultimately, the Baron and Luthien story is not even about the thing that they accomplish, the heroic thing they accomplish, which is more heroic and more impressive than anything accomplished by anybody else at any point. I mean, this this deed of Baron and Luthien is the most famous deed um, that will ever be accomplished, but that's not even really the point, the ultimate point of their story. Um, their bond to each other because remember, the other bondage imagery that we got was not just the negative stuff of people being imprisoned, but even the positive thing. Baron's love for Luthien, when when the, the, the spell of enchantment was laid upon him, was also characterized as a bond, um, and as a chain, even. <clears throat> and um, and yet that, that bond, the bond of them together, is unbroken. And that bond is what leads them to be ultimately set free, in, in, in a sense, set free from tragedy. Their story, from their perspective, is not tragic in the end. They are reunited, and they're not going to be separated. This, uh, remember, as Tolkien emphasizes in The Lord of the Rings, this is why, uh, to Elrond, it's a really, really, really big deal that his daughter is marrying... Um, is marrying a mortal because unlike Thingol, he has a precedent for this and he knows what it means. Thingol doesn't really understand what it means. He just sees this as this mad pr- presumption on the part of a mortal. Um, but Elrond, because this is the post Luthian era, knows exactly what it means and therefore knows that, as Tolkien says in The Lord of the Rings, in, you know, towards the end of, in, in many partings, that their separation is going to endure beyond, uh, beyond the world. I mean, it's, it's like not until the end of time is there any chance of, of Arwen and Elrond being able to get together again, where, whereas, as we know, as we've seen and talked about before, um, elves do get reunited. Earlier in this chapter, we're told that Finrod is reunited with his dad, Finarfin, whom he left behind in Valinor after his death. Um, but there's going to be no such reunion um, for Luthien and, and her dad, or any of the other elves. Um, but no separation between her and Baron. She and Baron would have been separated permanently, well, at least until the end of the world, had their fates remained as they originally were. So their bond together frees them uh, from separation. And so it's it's interesting, because ultimately, the story of Baron and Luthien is a tragedy, but a tragedy from whose perspective? I mean, you if you look at the very end, I think the, the very end of this chapter um, is, and I think we mentioned this in previous weeks too, one of the most obviously and explicitly elf-centric statements of the entire book, of this entire book, which is elf-centric, um, as we've talked about at many points before. Um, the last sentence, Yet in her choice the two kindreds have been joined, and she is the forerunner of many in whom the Eldar see yet, though, the, all, though all the world is changed, the likeness of Luthien the Beloved, whom they have lost. They have lost her. That's their tragedy. They won't get Luthien. And this, of course, is also another reason why it hurts more for Elrond and for others that Arwen is gonna, is gonna, is gonna be Luthien part two, both, you know, in her destiny, because what people, what we're told that people were saying about Arwen, uh, Elrond's daughter is that she's like Luthien come again. She's, you know, she reminds the people who remember Luthien, and there are people kicking around who knew Luthien personally. Um, not Elrond, of course, as he is a, he's a descendant of hers, but, um, but there are others who do. Um, Arwen reminds her of, 
of reminds them of her of Luthien. She's almost like Luthien come again, and now darn it, if she isn't going to do the same thing, and they're going to lose her just like they lost Luthien the first time. Um, but anyway, I'm sort of uh, 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 digressing. Or yes, uh, Laura, as you say, Goadriel and Kirden both clearly. Uh, Goadriel, obviously, she lived with Luthien for 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 centuries. Um, uh, Kirden certainly Celeborn too. Celeborn was it was 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 her kinsman um, there in Doriath. Um, yeah, Chris, go ahead. I had a, a, a thought, um, <clears throat> thinking about the, the nature of death being, from the perspective of being the gift of Iluvatar to men, and then on a, on a kind of a parallel thought that, the, that somewhere early in the book it said something about even the Valar and the Eldar may become weary of being in Arda as time, as time passes. So it almost seems to me like the the, the you know from, the, from thinking about the bondage from the point that Arda is really the in the grand scheme of things through the end of you know when you look about through the whole length of time Arda is just kind of temporary it's going to end and presumably everybody's going to be with Iluvatar in some sense down the road well Luthien gets to join Baron and go to Iluvatar ahead of time mm-hmm. I mean with with the men so that's Again, the nature of the gift of men being a very positive thing, being able to leave the world and go to be with Iluvatar. So I, I guess that's that's a thought I had as I read as I read that. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I and I, yes, I I agree with you. I agree with you in a kind of uh, slightly qualified way. Um, that is. It is certainly true, and you're right to remember those passages. We know that the Valar are bound; they're tied now to Arda, having entered it. Um, and and as you say, you you know you rightly quote that passage from before, where uh, that the release from Arda in death that that men get is something which um, which in that one sentence this is even the even the the powers might envy. Um, it is going to be kind of wearying eventually. Um, to still be bound here. But here's my here's my qualification. <clears throat> I think that we have to be careful. Um the sort of the knee jerk temptation when looking when comparing the fates of elves and men is to say, oh look, elves have it well and men get the shaft. You know, elves are immortal and men are mortal and this is really sad and obviously obviously elves get what's best. But then you sort of look at it and you think about, you know, Chris, exactly as you say, uh, the gift of Iluvatar and all that. And you say, actually, you know, and so one can easily talk oneself around a completely the other direction and saying, actually, death is awesome. Men have it good and elves are getting the shaft. And, um, and the gift of men is far superior to the gift that elves have. And I think that's not, that's, that's, that's clearly no more true than the other one is. Um, so I, I agree. I, yes, I mean, I, so I, as I said, I think we have to be careful. I would resist reading the end of this in such a way that we sort of say, like, ultimately we see that the real blessing, the real release, is uh, is through death and to be and to be set free from the world. I, I think that is an element here. It is definitely sort of involved, but um, but anyway, it's it's not. Uh, it's it's. I, I think it's it's. To say it in that way, not Chris, not that you were saying it as crudely as I was saying it, but um, to uh, but to put it in that way would be would be kind of an oversimplification of the situation, I think. Um, and 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's kind of, there's so many ironies in some ways in the end, you know, the, I like that is the irony that they're bond to each other and the chain of love that is laid upon Baron at the beginning ultimately sort of is their freedom. Uh, the irony of, um, you know, the two of them being, being freed by their fate, like they are constrained to pursue their destiny, but then their destiny is what, you know, the, the, the destiny that they are constrained to pursue, um, you know, sort of frees them from, uh, you know, ultimately from, uh, from the, the, their, their, their situation, you know, frees them from tragedy so that they themselves don't have a tragic end. Um, well, there's lots more to say about this here, but we have we have reached our time. We started a little bit late, so I went to, I I I indulged myself to go to two hours uh, from our starting point. But we should probably we should probably end. Uh, and if anyone has anything that you want to bring back about the, especially the the uh, release from bondage stuff, uh, we should uh, we can we can kind of come back with that a little bit at the beginning of next time. But next time we're doing the the near night Arnoidiad, um, which is clearly tragic <laughs> so um uh we will yeah yeah so we'll have lots of depressing things to talk about next time um any final thoughts comments before we sign off here yeah brandon go ahead just want to say oaths are a good thing and uh good night <laughs> yes i was uh... well done brandon okay uh <laughs> thanks for thanks to everybody again and uh, and we will say goodnight. I hope you all enjoyed our three-part discussion of Baron and Luthien. That chapter always strikes me deeply, and currently I'm planning to have some passage from it or from the Lay of Lathian read at my wedding next year. Yes, on a personal note, I finally proposed to my own long-suffering Luthien. I'd love to hear your thoughts about which part exactly I should use. Please share them with me on the Silmarillionaires Facebook page, or tweet them at my Twitter handle, Dave Kale, D-A-V-E-K-A-L-E, or at the official Silmarillionaires Twitter account, Silmarillionaire spelled without an E. I have some additional announcements. First, I'd like to point you to a listener's blog called Iceberg Inc. at icebergink.blogspot.ca. Over the next year, the author Scott is going to work his way through the Silmarillion, I believe for the first time ever, aided by our podcast. Should make for good reading. Second, although we have not publicized it widely, some of the Silmarillionaires are currently conducting a second seminar during which we are working our way through both primary sources such as the histories of Middle-earth as well as published Silmarillion scholarship and other secondary sources. While recordings won't be available for download for a while, if you'd like to listen in live, we usually broadcast on Middle-earth Network Radio every other Thursday night. Stay tuned to our Facebook page for announcements. Further, we may soon have room for additional participants if you're interested. Finally, if you're not listening to the Mythgard Institute's Riddles in the Dark podcast featuring Professor Olson and myself, then you must not be excited about The Hobbit, which I find hard to believe. So, go visit the Mythgard website immediately and find out more about this awesome podcast in which you'll hear the very best Hobbit analysis and speculation available on the internet. Thanks for listening, and Godspeed.